Thank you, John, for your animated leadership this morning. It is always such a gift when you serve as liturgist. Would you please pray with me? O compassionate one, come to us during this time of quiet reflection and meditation. Stir us, stretch us, move us through your word and through the words that you place on each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Some of you have met Brian, who just happens to be my nephew. Brian lives in Boston with his family. And they get out here to Columbus every so often. In fact, they were just here this past fall for my ordination. And Brian had a role in the service that day. He served as one of our readers. Brian is a legislative aide. He works in the State House in downtown Boston. In fact, he works in the office of Governor Baker and also for the Speaker of the House. Brian is a professional public speaker. He gives presentations at all kinds of conferences and in schools. For instance, Brian has taught med students at Harvard Medical School a number of times. Brian is a disability rights activist and advocate. He also serves as a liturgist at his church on a regular basis. He is a bookworm and a history buff, especially American history. Brian has always been a doting older cousin to our five children, who are among the youngest of the grandchildren in the family, on my side of the family. And oh yeah, there's one more thing that I want to mention about Brian. Brian has Down syndrome. And for the past 28 plus years, ever since that moment that we all found out that he was born with this extra chromosome, Brian has been and will always be one of the greatest teachers in my life. And I remember the very first lesson that I learned from Brian. He was still a baby at the time. Brian's mom, my sister Julie, helped me to understand, our whole extended family, to understand why people-first language matters. People-first language. Maybe that's a term that some of you are familiar with. I see a lot of head nodding. How often have you heard someone say, oh, that family has a Downs baby? Or maybe you've heard something like this, oh, those Downs kids, they are just so happy and affectionate all the time. I used to make comments like that before Brian was born and since he has taught me otherwise. People first language, by definition, 
is language that places a person before a diagnosis or disease in describing what a person has rather than asserting what a person is. The history of person-first language can be traced back to the 1980s to different advocacy groups for people with disabilities and mental illness and AIDS. The purpose of people-first language is to avoid the marginalization or the dehumanization of people who are often considered to be outside of the so-called mainstream or of our own personal standards of what is normal and acceptable and familiar to us. Now, I certainly don't hope that I come across as the word police up here, standing up here and pointing my finger, because I am not by any means a perfect practitioner of people-first language. I'm still learning. For instance, as many of you know, I now work in the healthcare industry as a chaplain, and I admit that I often find myself, especially initially, seeing someone else, a human being, primarily through the lens of their illness or their disease. Or, or in a completely different context, in this current politically charged and divisive national climate that we find ourselves in, I admit that I often size someone up according to their political affiliation. I do. I'm not proud of it, but I do. I find myself saying, oh, I wonder if she's a Democrat. Or I might say, oh, I think he might be a Republican. Or sometimes I say, oh, I, I wonder if that person is a Green Party member. What really throws me off is when I learn that someone is an independent. <laughs> because then I can't place them in that neat and tidy little box that I want to put them in. But overall, what I have found throughout the years is that PFL, Person First Language, is changing not just the language that I use, but over time, with a whole lot of practice, it is actually changing the way that I think and the way that I engage with other human beings and the way that I see the world. And it is even changing my theology, the way that I study and interpret and understand scripture. Which brings me, which finally brings me to our text this morning. That very familiar story, one of the best known parables of Jesus, the one that is known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'll never forget the class discussion about this parable in one of my New Testament classes a few years back. My professor, Dr. Powell, was emphatic in his position that it is simply misguided to refer to the story as the parable of 
the prodigal son. Rather, he said, this should be called the parable of the compassionate father. Because the focus of this story is not on the reckless and wasteful behavior of the son. Instead, my professor stressed that the reason that, that, that this story matters is because it teaches us about compassion. The father, the parent in this story, models for all of us as followers of Jesus today what Christ-like love for all people actually looks like. Dr. Powell's comments have resonated with me since then. After all, Jesus himself didn't even use that word or label prodigal in this story. He didn't gather his followers and the religious leaders around him and say to them, now let me tell you about the story of the prodigal son. Nor does the gospel writer of Luke use that language in recording the story. You know who added that language, don't you? It was us, the institutional church throughout the ages. It just seems to be part of our human condition to label those whom we deem to be outside of the mainstream. Because if we are able to create this space, this fictitious space between us and them, then it's easier to distance ourselves from the inconvenience and the discomfort of having to acknowledge the truth about how God sees us as one people, each one beloved, each one whole. Just turning into the news on a regular basis, Reminds me of this human tendency we have to label and stereotype others. For instance, I heard a news report a while back about a law enforcement officer who was accused of sexually assaulting a prostitute. That was the only language that was used to describe the victim, a prostitute. That's a loaded word, isn't it? And I wonder how the usage of that word on that day in that news report changed the story for all the listeners who heard it. Did it add some context? Or perhaps judgment? Earlier this month, Several of you helped to plan and lead and participate in the Faces and Faiths of Sanctuary, an event that was held here right in this sanctuary at Just North. It was a very well-received event and community conversation about the growing sanctuary movement here in Columbus. And I was heartened to see all the local news coverage about that event. It was very encouraging. However, I did notice that one of the local news organizations, in its reporting, 
used the following language, and I quote this verbatim. They held a forum at just north UCC, encouraging other faith leaders to follow suit and to allow undocumented to live in local churches to avoid federal capture and deportation. Undocumented. Undocumented. Okay, now, first of all, the grammar police in me does have something to say here. Undocumented and illegal, by the way, is not, they're not words. But what is really so deeply troubling here is that this is just yet another example of the normalization of such offensive language words like undocumented and illegals that are intended to dehumanize and vilify entire demographic groups of certain human beings, of God's children, who are desperate and fleeing violence and extreme impoverished conditions in their countries. This is our context today. Now, in seeking to understand the meaning of this text for our world today, I've decided to rename this story, at least for myself, and for me at least for myself. And I'm now referring to it as the parable of extravagant welcome. In this story, oh my, still has, I guess I got <laughs> I got a little wound up there, didn't I? When did that happen? My stole just fell off. <laughs> In this story, the father embodies extravagant welcome. As you know, the son returns home after having been away for an extended period of time. And we can only imagine the anguish the father must have felt when the son was away. He must have been worried sick about his son. But yet, upon seeing his son approaching off in the distance, what does the father do? He runs to his son. He kisses him and embraces him fully. There's no name-calling or angry words to shame him or guilt-trip him. Instead, the father celebrates his son and his homecoming with a lavish feast. This story is all about love, unconditional, all-embracing, all-encompassing, Christ-like love. The father saw his son 
as God saw him, as a person first, precious and beautiful, beloved and whole. This is truly a story about extravagant welcome. During the past 15 years or so, we have been using extravagant welcome language across our denomination, the United Church of Christ, in order to inspire and describe the kind of welcome that we hope to extend to all who enter our doors here, or those whom we encounter in the community. Here at North, our extravagant welcome is not just the words that you see in our welcome statement that you read each week in the bulletin, although those words are very, very significant and meaningful. Our welcome statement has become a guiding principle that shapes our life together as a congregation. We seek to live out God's extravagant and inclusive love through our welcome statement, yes, and through all of our commitments and ministries as Just North. And today we are lifting up one of those ministries, one of those vital ministries, which of course is called bread. Bread is one of the avenues. <laughs> bread is one of the avenues through which we are able to live out the parable of the extravagant welcome. Bread helps us to strip away stereotypes and labels that we might truly see our neighbors as people first, and that we might try to become a truly welcome, welcoming and all-encompassing and inclusive community here in Columbus. We see people first when we advocate that all persons in our community deserve an authorized municipal identification card as a way of validating and affirming their God-given identity, bread. We see people first when we insist that all families deserve the basic human right of having an affordable and safe and secure place to live, bread rises. We see people first when we disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline by insisting that every single youth in our community deserves a second and fair chance, bread rises. We see people first when we advocate that citizens with criminal backgrounds do indeed deserve the opportunity to earn a just and living wage, bread rises. We see people first when we advocate that every citizen of our community should have the same life expectancy, regardless of zip code or race or ethnicity or poverty status. Bread rises. Bread rises. Bread rises. Bread. 
I just stole that fits. <laughs> um, I don't need to go to the gym this week. I, I, I never do, but I don't need to go this week either. <laughs> Getting my workout today. I'd like to close with a quote from Brian from a recent presentation. One, because I am a shamelessly proud aunt. And two, because I think Brian's words here would touch your heart too. And I'm going to try to change the slide here. Let's see. There we go. There we go. This is a slide that he showed at one of his recent presentations, and I'm going to offer his words here. These are his closing remarks from that program. Brian said, When you have a disability, that is often the only characteristic that people think you have. They forget about all of your other traits and qualities. Yes, I have Down syndrome, but I am also a son, a brother, a grandson, a nephew, a cousin, a history buff, a working man, a commuter, a Boston sports fan, and a Christian. When people see me at church, they sometimes wonder what they are supposed to do to minister to me. They forget that I also minister to others. Here are a couple of pictures of me putting my faith into action by walking in the Walk for Hunger with my family and in the Women's March with my mom. I participate in these things because I believe that God's world is an inclusive one. We all have basic human rights that need to be met. Bread rises. Thanks be to God. Amen. We enter into a time of prayer. If you have any prayer requests, I'm just collecting those today. Pastor Zen and John, you're going to lead us in prayer today. And as we do this, uh, let's sing our call to prayer. Let's sing verses 1 and 4 of our call to prayer.